I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. This week, we look at two new books addressing politics in North Africa. First, we talk to Dalia Ghanem about her new book, Understanding the Persistence of Competitive Authoritarianism in Algeria. And then we talk to Sami Ziad Badran about his new book, Killing Contention, Demobilization in Morocco During the Arab Spring. Uh, thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's book segment, we're joined by Dalia Ghanem. She's a senior analyst responsible for the MENO portfolio at the European Union's Institute for Strategic Studies. She just published Understanding the Persistence of Competitive Authoritarianism in Algeria with Paul Gray and McMillan. Dalia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. So it's great to read such a detailed uh, uh, analysis of Algerian politics over the last uh, few decades. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins of the book and uh, what you were trying to accomplish by writing it? Well, I was trying to make people understand what is Algeria. This is, you know, a country that many people do not understand. And when they try, many analysts, you know, have this argument according to which that the country has been, you know, muddling through a never ending transition to democracy. So in this book, which is based on the frontline research that include interviews in Algiers with, uh, with different uh, actors, you know, civil society organization, politician, business sector, the police, but also the military, uh, and of course, ordinary Algerian citizen. Uh, I, I try to explain, uh, to argue that there is no trend toward democratization in Algeria. In fact, Algeria today is more uh, a continuation of its pre-1989 iteration than it is any sort of precursor to democracy. So what I am trying to uh, explain in this book is look at Algeria as it is and not uh, uh, and not like as what it should be. Um, so I argue that uh, the, the regime has been resilient because it has been, you know, uh, standing or supporting, supported by five pillars. This is why there is five chapters. It is written in a very friendly, uh, reader friendly way. No footnotes for uh, for the readers. You know, it's my voice, my analysis. So five pillars, five chapters. So just before we get into the specific pillars and the specific chapters, uh, you know, there's a couple of things about Algeria that are probably the, what pop into people's minds. One is the impact of the of the dark decade of the civil war of the 1990s, uh, which you talk about uh, quite a bit in terms of how that structured the um, you know, the resurgent regime. And then currently the Hirak and the, uh, the the eruption of mass mobilization that began a couple of years ago. Um, and before we get into the specifics of, of your analysis of, of each of the pillars, could you tell us a little bit about those two factors and kind of the frontline things that I think most people think about when they think about Algeria? 
Yes, well, the country you now moved from the violence of the civil war at the end of 1999 with the with the advent of uh, President Abdelaziz Bouteflika, who was brought to power by the military. Uh, we will never insist enough on that, uh, despite frictions between them. But uh, the country moved, you know, from that Bouteflika, you know, brought uh, also he is seen despite the fact that it is not 100% true, he is seen as being the architect of peace with the, the, uh, the famous charter of national reconciliation that brought back peace uh, in Algeria. And uh, it was uh, a top-down uh, reconciliation uh, process. And so, um, you know, it's very interesting to see that in 2018, Algeria was considered, was ranked as one of the seventh, seventh most uh, or safest countries in the world. And so that was very interesting, you know, to see that the country that has been struggling with the civil war that was responsible for the death of almost 200,000 people moved in the 2000 as being one of the safest countries uh, in the world. Um, uh, now, when it comes to the Hirak, the Hirak, you know, it's uh, it's something that is uh, that I wrote about even before it happened. If I may say, you know, some of my my uh, colleagues on Twitter called me Nostradamus because in 2016, you know, I I had this this uh, piece um, uh, talking about how the transition from Bouteflika to another president was going to create a moment of instability and there will be a youth movement that will lead to that. And eventually this is what happened because the Hirak was a youth movement. It was cross-cultural, cross-regional, cross-socio-cultural, of course. Uh, it was you know, composed by several strata of society. It was really a beautiful movement. But um, it, it, it created a moment of instability within the regime that lasted a few weeks. But then, as I said in my 2016 piece, the reflexes, the old reflexes of the regime kicked in mm. and it was very quick into reacting. The regime and the military, uh, with that it had the military, were you know, very quick to react and they made this very rational calculus, which was what it will cost us to keep Bouteflika and what it will cost us to sacrifice him. And they decided eventually to sacrifice Bouteflika, to put for a certain time, you know, Gaid Saleh at the head of the state, because he was basically, you mm -hmm. know, uh, uh, the, the, the person who Algerian saw on national television almost on a daily basis. And then, they were smart enough, you know, not to want Abdel Fattah Sisi, you know, uh, made in Algeria. So they didn't want to remain in the front line because the military in Algeria, they do not govern, but they rule. They are not governing, but they are ruling. And they understood that staying in the limelight is going to put them in a, a very difficult and delicate situation. So they were adamant about organizing presidential elections. And this is how we end up with Taboon as the head of state in um, on December 12, 2019, because they understood that staying in the forefront was bad for them, for their image, for their national image, but also for their, you know, cohesion.
And that's actually a great transition because uh, the, the the first uh, substantive chapter of your book uh, goes into the role of the military and uh, the very you know the granular ways in which the military uh, is within the political system and structures the political system. So tell us a little bit about how we should understand this this military which rules but doesn't govern um, and what you learned as you researched the book. Yes, uh, sure. Well, what I tried to explain in the chapter, and I did it in a chronological way, in a way, uh, is that, you know, I tried to show at each period of time how the military intervened in politics in Algeria. But I say that during, you know, Algeria's first three decades as an independent state, the army consistently manipulated the political arena from behind the scenes through, um, through time. Uh, it never really governed the country, but the army exercised, you know, to varying degrees, supervision and even sometimes outright control, like it happened during the interrupt the interruption, sorry, of the electoral process in 1992. Uh, so the army's action in 1992 marked a qualitative change in its approach to Algerian politics. That year, it intervened to scrap parliamentary election that the FIS, the Salvation, um, the, uh, the, the, sal the Islamic, Islamic Salvation, Salvation Front. Front, yes, was poised to win and arrested thousands of people who were supposedly affiliated and many of them had nothing uh, to do with actually the FIS. So, you know, of course, there is a lot of history, uh, but not that much in the book, but I explain how the army was born. Uh, the military coup of of Boumedien, uh, the rise also of the military security, la sécurité militaire SM under uh, Boumedien, and then I arrive to the advent of the multi-party politics under Benjdid. And throughout all these periods, I try to explain how the military actually intervened behind the scene to make sure that the major decision when it comes to economy, uh, to uh, foreign policy were taken by the military. Because even the economic liberalization, it was, you know, not um, a complete economic liberalization, but it was, you know, partial. It was decided by also the high echelon of the military. And of course, you know, we had the years of uh, lead, you know, when the military took effective control of the country in the 90s. And, uh, you know, they put in, pla in place the HCU, which is the High Comité d'État. Uh, they dissolved it then in 1994. And, you know, they chose to appoint a consensual candidate. And that candidate was. Um, well, they also decided to, you know, remove him after that. And so I show how actually each president, every president in the Algerian history was chosen by the military, placed by the military, and then removed by the military. And what is very interesting, you know, I always give this example is that when Bouteflika came into power in 1999, he was at Kranz Montana uh, Forum, and there is this amazing video of him speaking in French, you know, and he talks about the military, and um, he is very defiant, uh, and he says that I am the representative of the Algerian nation, 
there is no institution that can, you know, eat me. He literally yeah. uh, used this word in French. He said, me manger. And then he says, even the army cannot eat me. And if it can, let it try to take a bite out of me. And what I keep saying is that while it is true that they didn't eat him, you know, directly, they let him do two mandates when the relationship between Bouteflika and the military was very good. And then things changed during the third mandate. But it took them 20 years, but they eventually ate him. <laughs> it is the same military that put him into power that, you know, sacrificed him in after the Herat in 2019. And so, you know, the military has always been the real locus of power. And I think, you know, this is not going to change anytime soon. Uh, and what is very interesting also to note is that the relationship that the Algerians have to the military. You know, I was in the demonstration. I uh, listened to the slogans. I, you know, noted all the slogans. And there was no moment when you could hear Algerians saying, armée dégage, military get out. You could hear, you know, les généraux dégagés, which means the generals uh, get out. You could hear which means a civilian state, not a military state. But that shows that the Algerian, they make a distinction between the military as an institution and the top echelon of the military, which are those generals that are, you know, behind the scene taking the, 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 the big decision. But the military as an institution is and remain, I believe, the most trusted institution in Algeria. It's interesting. One of the things which uh, comes out of that chapter is that despite this facade of a unified military, at key moments in history, you do see divisions among the generals and you do see politicians, presidents who try to, uh, to push back against the military even if they ultimately fail. And that that jockeying for power behind the scenes is really quite fascinating. It is, it is. As I, I, I just said, uh, Bouteflika was mm -hmm. one of them. Bouteflika had a grudge against the military. Of course, let us re remind uh, uh, here that uh, Bouteflika was one of the youngest foreign ministers uh, of uh, uh, Algeria. He was, you know, the close uh, 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 colleague slash friend of uh, uh, President Houari Boumediene. And when Houari Boumediene died, uh, President Bouteflika was sure, actually, you know, that he would be the next president. And there was a tension between President Bouteflika uh, uh, Foreign Minister Bouteflika and Ali Hiawi, um, as uh, who was the General Secretary of the FLN, the National Liberation mm -hmm. Front, and so the military back then understood that this is going to put the stability of the country into jeopardy. So what they did is that they intervened again behind the scene through the Security Militaire, the SM uh, at it had was Qasdim uh, who intervened and they chose a consensual candidate who was Shadli bin Jdid, and they decided, you know, to push Bouteflika out of the country. And this is where Bouteflika mm -hmm. went out 
in his traversée du désert, as we say in French, he went to Dubai, he went to Switzerland. So he had a grudge against him, uh, against them. So when he came back in 1999, when they called him, because let us insist, they called him and they brought him. Uh, he spent two terms with them in a good terms. And then in 2013, after the attack of the gas facility in Ain Minas in 2013, the relationship started to turn sour because, you know, he fired few uh, generals mm -hmm. who um, he, he, he said they were responsible of this uh, security debacle in, in the South. And this is where, you know, he started, some would call it purges, some other would call it security sector reform. But in any case, the relationship became more tense. And, um, you know, they let him again. They let him run a third term, a fourth term. And as I say it in my book, according to interviews I made with few military and military insiders, actually many of them were gonna let him run for a fifth term. But when they saw the reaction of the Algerian street that was so vocal about not having an ailing president mm -hmm. in a wheelchair again, for a president for another mandate, then they said, okay, now we need to do something about it and maybe sacrificing him is the best solution. But, you know, uh, as I say it in, 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 in my book, and I take this from Teda Skopol, um, even after a loss of legitimacy, a state can remain relatively stable and certainly immune to internal mass revolts, especially if the repressive apparatuses retain their cohesion and effectiveness. And this is what the Algerian military knew how to do even during the Black Decade, because while it is true that they were divided between the eradicators, those who wanted to eradicate the Islamists, and between the conciliators, those who wanted to negotiate with the Islamists, it remained pretty homogenous. And this is how Algeria, you know, uh, was able, you know, to stringe, uh, you know, to, 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 to take so many victories uh, against the GIA, against, you know, the different jihadist groups, because the, 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 the military remained, after all, pretty cohesive. Uh, cohesive, exactly. Now, one of the things which is interesting about the book is you don't stop with the military and you have a really interesting analysis of the way ostensibly opposition parties actually become a pillar of the system itself as they become co-opted. So walk us through that process a little bit and why we don't we shouldn't look at uh, these uh, elections as anything to do with democracy. Yes, well, you know, and this is my main argument, and this is why the book is called Understanding the Persistence of Competitive Authoritarianism in Algeria, because this is not an authoritarian regime. Uh, authoritarianism in Algeria was under Boumedian, for instance. This is a semi-authoritarian regime that mixes between elements of democracy and authoritarianism. 
And you know, it is also called electoral authoritarianism. So uh, in countries governed by such hybrid regimes, even if opposition parties avail themselves, like it is the case in Algeria of democratic mechanisms and participate in elections. And God knows that we have many of these, you know, the playing field is severely tilted in favor of state loyalists whether incumbents, uh, incumbents or challengers. So basically what happened is the result will, will always be, you know, in favor of the regime incumbents. Um, so the opening, um, you know, of 1989 was, you know, a very important event because we went from a multi-part, uh, we went from, a one-party system to a multi-party system. But then what happened is that election, rather than serving as a forum for political competition and a fair uh, political competition, are viewed by the regime actually as a means of legitimizing and re-legitimizing itself. Mm -hmm. It is a democratic alibi that comes in handy when it is accused of authoritarianism. The regime views political parties that are ostensibly opposed to it, not as rivals, but rather as potential partners whom it might coerce into presenting Algeria to the world as the democracy. And in this context, the outcomes of elections reflect the battles taking place at the heart of the state more than in the public sphere. So the techniques employed by the state to regulate parties' capacity, including their practices of tampering with the ballot box, this is very well known in Algeria and with the social uh, with social media, we have evidences of these, uh, uh, you know, tampering with the ballot box. Uh, the regime has actively contributed to the general public loss uh, of legitimacy. So what happened is that we have parties, but they are so, uh, you know, co-opted and they are well co-opted by the regime that Algerian citizens lost all uh, trust in them. One of the proof of that is that when in 2019, the Hirak started and many party leaders, including the Islamists, went down to the street to demonstrate and to say, yes, we are with the people we do not agree with the with the with the Bouteflika decision to run for a fifth term they were actually you know uh, described and shouted out uh, as Shiyatin. Shiyatin means in Algerian dialect psychophant so this is how Algerian perceive them they perceive them as psychophant of the regime mm -hmm. and actually what happened and very smartly is that the Algerian regime allowed for very large number of parties to exist. So a large number of parties causes the party system to fragment with multiple parties creating confusion over which cleavages that shape the political spectrum are real. And several narrowly focused issue-based parties sprang up and seemed to operate without relying on any specific segment of society. And so this fragmentation or this hyper-pluralism is actually another process that is called, you know, partification of politics leads to the mobilization of the population because the population loses trust in, uh, in, this, um, in these parties.
But meanwhile, so, civil yeah. society is also, as you say, atomized, exactly. fragmented, co-opted. Exactly. So, you know, the civil society organization, it's, it's exactly the same phenomena. In 2012, for instance, Algeria was uh, one of the densest countries in terms of civil society organization in the MENA region. Back then, we had 92,000 civil society organization. And by doing so, what does the regime do? First of all, it says to the world and to the neighboring countries, but also to the to the European, uh, you know, um, neighbors. Look, we are a democracy. Look at us. We have even ninety two thousand civil society organization, women association. We do even have LGBTQ plus uh, organization. We let them be. This is the ultimate proof that we are a democracy. But what they do in the meantime, when they do not demonize and stigmatize and marginalize these CSOs, is they try to co-opt them, to co-opt them. And what is very important here to keep in mind, because Algeria is not like in other countries, such as, for instance, Lebanon, where you have CSOs relying on external funds. This is not possible in Algeria. CSOs in Algeria are not allowed to have European or American funds. They actually are forbidden from doing so. So they, they rely heavily on state funds. When you rely heavily on state funds, you cannot function because basically the funds come from the state and the state give you whatever it deem necessary for your functioning. And by giving less and less money to the CSO, the state also hinders your ability to function. And this is, you know, very, very, very smart. What they do also and what I talk about is they they do a strategy called cloning the cloning strategy basically is when they realize that there is for instance a labor union or a civil society organization that is becoming very strong what they do is they create exactly uh, the same civil society organization by co-opting members from the former one when they see that, uh, you know, when they see that there is tensions, they take the members, you know, they suggest creating a new organization, and then the new organization become a state organization. Very clever. Um, then, along with all of that, there is, of course, straightforward repression. Yes. That, that never goes away, but it's changed over the years. Uh, and you detail some of the ways in which it has evolved as a form of, uh, of, of social control. Exactly. And I think this is also where you see how the regime is smart, is being smart about the tool uh, and the coercive measures. So we had the regime that is clearly have been throughout a learning curve. We have a regime that was outright authoritarian and very violent. Uh, let us remember here the repression of October 5th, 1988, when you know the army shot uh, very uh, young uh, people, um, according to uh, non-authoritarian 
official figures 500 uh, youngster died that day. We have a regime that in the 90s, uh, you know, to uh, face uh, the danger of the FIS and the jihadist violence put directly, you know, uh, approximately 40,000 people in camps in the desert without any trial. And then we have a regime that in 2019, and I witnessed that at the beginning of the Hirak, there was, you know, a very, you know, there was a police presence in the street, but you could see how the police well were very trained, very well trained and well behaved. And they didn't use repression directly. Um, and that, I think, is the lesson that they learned. They understood that, uh, uh, allow me the term, going ballistic directly mm -hmm. just the population is going to be counterproductive, uh, counterproductive. So what they did is they basically let them be, let them demonstrate. They watched. They used, you know, this uh, technique of... Uh, that has been used in Egypt and Tunisia as well. They use social media to track the opposition figures and then they crack down on them. And then the pandemic arrived and what they did is that they used the pandemic to crack and to silence this, uh, the, the, the last voices of dissent. But again, they did it very in a subtle way. They didn't use, you know, um, extreme uh, force. And they used also the war of attrition. They waited for the Hirak to show its first dissension. They waited for the mm -hmm. Hirak to show its first signs of uh, um, fragmentation. Yeah. Yes. And then they used that against the Hirak. So even when it comes to the coercive measures, they were very, very smart in how they used it. Let us also note here that we are talking about a country that has amazing and tremendous defense capabilities. Uh, it is one of the best trained police in the region, the best trained military in the region with this counterterrorism experience during the 90s. And we, so I'm trying to say that, I'm, I'm saying that to say that if they want to go ballistic on the population, they have the means to do it. Uh, Algeria uh, in 2019 uh, spent uh, $10 billion in uh, um, uh, defense uh, in defense budget mm -hmm. that represented 6.6% of the GDP. Today, Algeria is spending $23 billion in defense budget that represent approximately 13% of GDP. So tomorrow, when the, the size of the carrot will shrink and when the regime will no longer be able to buy social peace, I do believe that the other option will be coercive measures. And that ultimately seems to be the bottom line is that uh, this is how you begin the book and how you end it which is that we don't see an Algeria that is on any kind of path towards democracy, just a more and more refined forms of, of, uh, of authoritarian control, despite the Hirak, despite all of that energy that's been let loose, you don't really seem optimistic that anything major is going to change. Exactly. Uh, you know, I think the regime, you know, 
knows when to lean on one pillar more than the other. And I explained the, the five pillars. So we have the military, the real locus of power. We have the fragmentation of civil society organization. We have hyper-pluralism and uh, the partification of uh, parties. Uh, we have repression and we have uh, the use of rent, patronage and corruption as a, a mode of, as a tool of uh, um, uh, uh, governance. And the regime has been very smart in, you know, shifting from one pillar to uh, another. Uh, however, you know, as I said in my book, the shift toward more authoritarianism by hybrid regimes following the succession of one leader by another is not always predetermined. Uh, a hybrid regime and their new leadership can go either way. It can attempt reconciliation with the opposition uh, or at the very least turn toward more consensus-based policies to reclaim some, you know, legitimacy and reduce conflict. Uh, alternatively, a hybrid regime might endeavor to restrict the opposition to limit the latter's activities and expansion. Well, initially, Abdel Majid Taboon showed some interest in the 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 uh, in getting closer, you know, to the opposition and trying to reconcile. But then, what we've seen recently is that. A president who is probably, you know, uh, under, you know, the control of the military and who shows no sign whatsoever in more, um, you know, in more uh, reconciliation. And I think, as I said in the book, there is four factors that are driving the turn to greater authoritarianism in post-Butflika Algeria. Uh, you know, the regime has been talking about this new Algeria. And again, there is no new Algeria. Four factors drive the return to greater authoritarianism in Algeria. There is, you know, the first factor, strong pro-autocracy state institution, especially the army and the judiciary. Um, you know, there is increasing factionalism within an atomized opposition, including civil society organization. Three, the regime's diminishing capacity to buy social peace, as I said it before, due to a challenging fiscal situation. And four, the regime's increased inability to remain socially and politically relevant. Today, Mark, this uh, historical legitimacy of we are the leadership that made and conducted the war of independence. We are the one that, you know, uh, uh, brought you victory against the French. The historical legitimacy died. And I think Bouteflika is, you know, this, uh, this sign of this legitimacy dying and not working anymore. So as I see it, you know, I, I, I see that Algeria is going to be more into more authoritarianism than, uh, than uh, uh, more towards a path to democracy. Today, it is a country that is witnessing, if I may say, a state of grace. The war in Ukraine helped Algeria to a certain extent because Algeria is a gas uh, exporter. And we have all these, you know, European leaders, former, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Italian uh, uh, Mario Draghi going, Elizabeth Bourne going to Algiers. We have... And this is, you know, clearly a sign that Algeria is coming back, you know, uh, to be more relevant uh, on the regional level. But again, 
the oil and gas bonanza is not going to allow the regime to buy social peace as it did in 2011. In 2013, for instance, Algeria, if my memory is good, ranked eighth worldwide when it came to exchange reserves. Today, it's no longer the case. So what the war in Ukraine and the gas bonanza is doing is it is allowing the leadership to buy some time, but until when? Well, thank you for that. It's really interesting discussion, really interesting book. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Dalia Ghanem of the European Union Institute for Strategic Studies. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. This week, we're going to look at a second book about North Africa, this time by Sameh Ziad Badran of the American University of Sharjah. He's just published the book, Killing Contention, Demobilization in Morocco During the Arab Spring, Syracuse University Press. Uh, Sameh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. So tell us a little bit about this book and uh, what you were trying to accomplish when you set out doing this research. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so, so this uh, this book, Killing Contention, is looking essentially at why and how social movements um, demobilize or die, as I put in the book. So, social movements or social movement um, related work um, in political science tends to look at how movements mobilize. Um, there's different theories about that. That tends to be to be the focus of social movement theory. Um, I take a different approach and I try to look at why movements um, die down, specific to the case of Morocco. Um, the book focuses on the main mobilizer of, of, uh, of uh, contention in Morocco during the so-called Arab Spring, which was the February 20th movement. Um, this was a very diverse movement um, that had very diverse factions in it, but they succeeded in pushing the regime towards reform. Um, and in the book, I show how after reforms, um, demobilization um, did not happen. It actually increased after um, reforms and after concessions were, uh, were offered. So I tried to look at why that is, um, and in the book I offer a theory to understand how, through kind of a very calculated um, approach by the king, by the regime, um, of using both concessions and repression, um, that social movement ends up um, essentially demobilizing and no longer being, um, you know, um, uh, uh, a very relevant movement in, in, uh, in Morocco. So tell us a little bit about the February 20th movement. And you said it was diverse, but can you describe a bit, uh, you know, who were they um, and how did they come together? Yeah, yeah. So the February 20th movement um, is kind of uh, in line with most modern social movements. And what I mean by that is that most um, contemporary social movements no longer tend to have, you know, this uh, this very hierarchical structure, like as we see with the civil rights movement in the U.S., for instance, right? It's more horizontally organized, where we have different factions, different maybe political parties, different political organizations working together in a very um, unstructured or less than structured way. Um, so there's no clear um, leader in the movement. There's no clear uh, figureheads. Um, but there are different groups that chose to unite around this call for reforms, and eventually some decided to move from reforms to revolution um, in the February 20th movement. Um, I want to note that the movement had, um, you know, kind of extremes from all ideological um, uh, um, perspectives. We had um, Islamist organizations in there. We had uh, Marxist, Leninist organizations. We had leftist organizations. Then we had kind of cultural movements, some looking at women's rights, some looking at uh, or focusing on Emizig, um or Berber rights. 
So very diverse. Um, and I think uh, this both served the movement in terms of mobilization, but also hurt the movement long term in terms of actually pushing for long term change. The role of the uh, of the Islamists in February twentieth is quite interesting, and you describe in the book uh, the the you know the numbers that they brought to the table, but also the risks involved with having such a strong Islamist presence. Tell us a little bit about which Islamists were participating, which ones weren't, and um, how that shaped the movement. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so that's a great question. Um, with looking at the role of Islamists and the February twentieth movement. Um, to quote a leftist interviewee, they were as organized as an army. So I'm focusing mostly on one um, organization here called the Justice and Charity Organization. So it's it's not legal in Morocco, but it is a tolerated um, uh, Islamist organization. Um, and it is, again, very, very organized. Um, and it, it is more hierarchically structured. So this is an organization where, you know, according to the leadership, they can easily and quickly mobilize, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. That's something that other groups within the February 20th movement did not have. Um, so with that in mind, um, the Islamists were integral to the success of the movement and leftists, and again, people, folks who are antagonistic towards the Islamists um, knew that they needed them in the group in order to be successful. There were other Islamist movements as well, um, very a lot smaller than, than the, the, the justice and charity organization like Hezbollah. Um, and they tended to be allies both with the Islamist and kind of a liberal and leftist elements within, uh, within um, the movement. Um, in the book, I'll go over how um, the JCO, or sorry, the Justice and Charity Organization, um, it, it, uh, it lacked kind of the internal legitimacy that other groups had. Um, and it ends up forming this interesting bond with um, very far left Marxist organizations. Um, and they're both working together in this interesting way, basically trying to push the, the organization towards a more revolutionary tone, which I think is really interesting, right? You have two groups, you know, diametrically opposed in terms of ideology, but working together to move from a form and towards revolution. So uh, so that's, uh, I think in chapter four or five in the book where I get into that. And I think it's kind of an interesting dynamic that we see within the February 20 movement. But you also talk about how the uh, the uh, the Arabas and the uh, the uh, Justin Charity Organization they were willing to uh, you know to not use Islamist slogans at least initially and being willing to you know back away from that in order to avoid putting an Islamist face on 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 this broad based movement. Yeah, yeah, that's something that I was um, personally very surprised to hear both from Islamists and leftists in their organization. I mean, this was a unique movement. This was a movement where protests didn't happen after prayers on Friday. There was an agreement by Islamists to have protests happen every Sunday, right? Um, so so again, there was a strategic element within the February 20th movement and a perception that at least among most Moroccans, they didn't want to see an Islamist uh, movement. They wanted to see a more um, uh, kind of uh, 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 perhaps a more secular movement on the streets. Initially, the Islamists were okay with this. Um, they tended not to be the ones, you know, um, you know, go, uh, offering interviews on TV or being at the forefront of protests. Actually, strategically, they would send their people towards the back. Right? They didn't want to be at the at the at the forefront of, of of press attention. But after strategic repression by the regime against Islamists, this changes. Right? This starts to change eventually, and the Islamists have more of a presence in the movement. Um, and this uh, 
this is something that leads to this alliance that I was discussing about the uh, you know leftists and Marxist organizations aligned with Islamists to push for more revolutionary change. So initially they were kind of out of sight, or I shouldn't say out of sight, but they were less um, uh, in sight, and then that kind of changes over time after um, they are targeted by repression. And then meanwhile, the PJD uh, refrains, at least officially, from joining the movement, which was a, a, a different strategic choice. Yeah, and it's one that kind of paid off, right? So, I mean, they kind of rode this way. They, they never officially supported the movement. There were individuals that did support the movement as individuals, not as a party. Um, and they won a plurality, right? After um, the, the constitutional reform and after early elections, they, they won, right? Um, so, so in the book, I mentioned an interview with a very prominent PGD member, and, and they make it clear that they are not part of the February 20th movement. So the person I interviewed made that explicitly clear. Um, and they also take uh, kind of an approach towards the movement that its time is up, right? No, it's no longer relevant. There's no need for a street movement, street, street politics like this anymore, right? The reforms have happened and basically the movement accomplished what it needed to accomplish. So so yes, the Peugeot Day um, um, definitely, uh, I think, rode this wave in 2011, 2012, and it ended up paying off for them um, from the perspective of the Peugeot Day. But then you also noted that once they won and formed uh, a government, then um, then the uh, JCO people largely pulled away. Yeah, yeah. So um, some, right? So, so some of them, uh, I think, yeah, they, they end up uh, no longer partaking in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in protest. Um, I think there is a time where there's a discussion happening from the February 20th movement of maybe moving protests from more traditional spaces like public squares and in front of parliament element and towards these so-called popular neighborhoods, which are densely populated, usually impoverished neighborhoods. Um, one example is Akari and Rabat, where you never really see mass protests happening there. And they try to move protests into these spaces, even after the Peugeot Day win. So th there were some there was some experimentation with seeing how far they could take their demands, or to use the term that interviewees use, the which is your kind of ceiling of the demands, how far they could take it. So some of that did happen, but you're right, you know, long term, they... Uh, they didn't really take uh, to the streets after the win. Now, one of the key moments here is, of course, the king's uh, speech and the offering of constitutional reforms, uh, which uh, you you get you give a kind of a mixed reading on that. Uh, and so, walk us through that a little bit in terms of what the king's reforms accomplished and what it didn't accomplish. Yeah, so I think the King's reforms um, in the March 9th speech was really a pivotal moment for Morocco during this time and for the February 20th movement. Um, the February 20th movement had a clear list of demands, right? Reform the constitution, end corruption, uh, free and fair elections, more democracy, and make Tamazic an official language. And the King strategically, I think, and uh, kind of systematically addresses each one of these points, right? And it's interesting to hear from interviewees, they viewed this as not a good thing, but kind of a threat to the movement. They, they refer to it as Darabat, these blows to the movement of, of the king, you know, giving into these concessions. So, so my reading of that is that, you know, social movements, um, they, they want to survive, they want to stay relevant. Um, and in the case of the February 20th movement, they experimented with different frames in order to stay relevant after the king essentially gave them everything they were demanding. They, they ended up demanding different things or different conversations happening within the movement about what the demands should be, again, how, what the ceiling of the demands could be. Um, so, so so my reading of the reforms were that, yes, they were 
um, unprecedented. They were major reforms, relatively speaking. However, long term, they did um, they begin this process of demobilizing the February 20th movement. They began the process, but it wasn't the only thing that led to the demobilization. And again, the, the concessions were followed by different waves of repression. Eventually, the referendum, the elections, the Peugeot Day win. So all these things combined led to kind of the death of this uh, this movement. And it's interesting that you noted that that after the speech, protests actually increase and they surge. And yet there's also this feeling like we got everything we asked for. So that's that's a good question. I, I feel like the feeling of we got everything we asked for was more common among the general public and less common amongst right. activists. Right. And that, that's that, that's kind of the problem for the February 20th movement, right? How, how do you convince the public that's, you know, very pro-king, they, they like the monarchy there, right? So it's, it's very clear that most people are are in favor of, of, of the reforms that are happening and of the concessions and, and everything else. But how does the movement kind of make the case that they should still be relevant, right? And, and that's kind of the problem they have um, um, going forward after the March 9th speech and after the, the reforms are are implemented. And and I think in part, uh, this this worked for the king because this is a reformist king, right? He, he came into power um, 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 kind of on the platform that reforms needed to take place. Um, and he didn't renege on the reforms, right? There are major reforms in terms of women's rights through the Moduana, the Truth Reconciliation Committee as well. So unlike other leaders in the region where they would make, um, you know, um, claims that they were going to reform things but not do that, this king did. And that precedent, I think, is very important for uh, for um, uh, for why kind of most people um, did view the reforms positively while activists maybe didn't view it as positively. So instead of immediately leading to demobilization, you talk about how it causes this distance uh, from the general public and also then internal fragmentation as they try and figure out what to do to stay relevant. Um, and then, as you said, repression, um, targeted repression. So take us through each of these three steps a little bit in terms of you know your argument about demobilization in general. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you look at demobilization here, um, in the case of Morocco, after the speech, there's this problem depletion, which basically means that what 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 are the things the group is fighting for, right? And then it's followed by this wave of repression. And repression again, um, it, it's not just physical um, repression; it's smear campaigns online, right? So Islamists here were portrayed as you know being, um, you know, uh, affiliated with extremists and terrorists and things like that. Um, and uh, leftists were portrayed as being Western-inspired drinkers of alcohol, you know, pro polisario um, and anti-Islamic, ironically, right? So, so there's this different framing happening um, um, online against uh, different members of, uh, of the February 20th movement. Um, and then from there, um, this leads to these internal conflicts or the framing crisis. So, so the book kind of takes this approach where I take a cultural approach to uh, social movement theory and look at how movements frame frame themselves. Um, and there's a difference, there's kind of a dissonance in the message at this point where some within the movement are calling for revolutionary demands and others are still kind of maintaining more reformist tone. And this actually leads to a split in certain cities. So there's, you know, the coastal city of Agadir where the, the movement literally splits into two, the, the revolutionaries and the reformists. Um, and uh, this kind of uh, continues and, you know, tends to happen throughout Morocco as well. So, so what ends up happening is that eventually, um, you know, the reformists slowly end up being convinced. They end up kind of leaving the movement, but the revolutionaries, um, the more radicals tend to stay. 
And that doesn't kind of overlap well with the general Moroccan public, which at the time, you know, keep in mind, they were very fearful of what was happening in the region, right? Libyan civil, the civil war in Libya was ongoing, right? Syria as well as kind of entering the midst of the civil war. Um, and and they didn't want um, uh, uh, Morocco to take the same path. Um, and I mean, uh, again, I, I've had um, interviews with, you know, ardent revolutionaries, Marxists and, and Islamists as well, who, you know, after they saw what was happening in the region, they they agreed that maybe the movement should tone down its message and it should kind of take a more reformist tone. So so all this was happening um, kind of at the same time, and this eventually leads to uh, to the demobilization of this movement. The regional context is really important, I think, and it's, it's often missed um, that all that all of these things are happening simultaneously and people are watching and, and drawing lessons from it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think at the time, it was especially the uh, the civil war in, uh, in, in Libya, because that was the one that was just is in the midst of civil war. It's in North Africa. It's right there. And uh, it, it, it was something that was broadcast, you know, 24-7 Morocco. They were very, very kind of conscious of what was happening in, um, in this um, country that's not too far away from, from Morocco. So, um, so some activists believe that the regime kind of uh, um, took advantage of that. And kind of made the case that you know what this is the alternative. And if you keep going down this road, right? If you if, you know if the suck, if there's no you know ceiling to demands, and if the tone increasingly becomes more and more revolutionary and Islamist um, from the perspective of the government, then this is what happens. Um, and at the time as well, it was Islamists that were winning elections in the region too, right? So some of the uh, the liberal leftist activists I spoke with. Um, um, weren't as in favor of democracy um, towards this time um, versus before, right? Once they saw Islamists coming into power, a lot of them start, started to question, right, um, whether this is kind of the path that Morocco should go down. Um, some, again, were at that moment happy with the reforms and didn't want to go and kind of uh, continue the path of the street protests at that time. And you do mention uh, you have a chapter on elections as part of the demobilization, part of the strategy of demobilization. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, the elections were really um, important for Morocco. This was the first uh, parliamentary elections where the Justice and Development Party, the PGD, um, were allowed to win a plurality, right? And I say that because before they were kind of uh, only allowed to have a certain number of seats in parliament. And that changes after the reforms. Um, and I see in my interviews both Islamists and leftists very happy about the outcome of these elections and surprised. Many of them were not expecting plurality of seats. They were expecting, you know, um, uh, 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 for them to not be number one in terms of the 2011 elections. So after this happens, even some leftists are convinced by the reforms and decide to leave the movement. Um, the JCO, um, the Islamists, ironically, I feel like were the ones who did not um, feel that this would lead to long-term change in Morocco and that this was just kind of a... Uh, used by the regime in order to demobilize protest. They, they referred to it often as the regime's last card. Right? They didn't want the PGD to come to, into power, but they had to use that card in order to break the movement. So, so yes, uh, there's a whole chapter on uh, on the PGD victory in, uh, in Morocco and how it led to, led to certain internal divides as well. And I think uh, that's a very important kind of part of this process towards demobilization. And uh, I guess it worked out pretty well for the PJD and not so well in the long term. What the regime gives, the regime taketh away. Yeah, right, right. Now we have uh, the PAM back in power and kind of regime loyalist uh, 
um, uh, um, and, uh, and, and Parliament, right? But, uh, but yeah, so I, I don't know how, uh, how long that will last um, either, but, uh, but yes, I think um, at least from the context of, you know, from the time frame of when I was doing my research in Morocco, it, it did work out well for them. One area where we do seem to have uh, some some lasting and quite significant change is with the uh, the Amazigh protests and uh, and kind of that cultural revival, um, which doesn't seem to have been clawed back in the same way that uh, some of the political reforms were. Yeah, um, with uh, some of the Amazigh uh, um, networks and individuals um, that I spoke with. Um, they overwhelmingly seem to be happy with the reforms. And um, I think overwhelmingly decided to no longer partake in protests after March 9. Um, you know, one of their main demands was um, recognition, having, you know, time seek be an official language, and, and that was granted to them. Um, and and they are also very fearful of the possibility of an Islamist uh, government in Morocco. That's something that almost every interviewee um, from Amazigh uh, organization um, made clear to me that that was something that they wanted to to avoid. Um, so so yes, um, I, I think kind of the trajectory of demobilization for the Amazigh uh, population or groups and uh, within the February twentieth movement was unique compared to the other ones. And then. You know, just you know, coming back then to this question of uh, of repression, because I think I think it's interesting because that's what many people think about when they think about how regimes you know end protests and crush them. But what you describe is a very selective, a very targeted type of repression, um, rather than kind of the blanket uh, crackdowns that you see elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, uh, I think with the repression. Um... That kind of happened in waves in in, uh, in Morocco. Um, it's targeted um, kind of throughout, and I think initially the direct repression tends to happen against the um, perceived extremist, right? I think it's it's kind of viewed as acceptable, at least from the from the regime's perspective, to to repress you know um, extremists like the JCO from the perspective of the government, right? So so Islamists tend to be the ones uh, facing. Uh, most of the repression initially. Um, and then again, uh, eventually the targeted repression um, looks at extremists from different leftist organizations as well um, and tends to paint them um, um, as, uh, you know, being uh, sympathizers with uh, the Polisario, you know, the separatists in the Western Sahara um, and Christian converts and things like that. So so that's something that happens uh, throughout um, um, this, uh, this time in Morocco. Um, and it's done with uh, with the public in mind, right? So the, the, the regime knows what the public tends to be in favor of and what the red, red lines are. And they know, um, you know, that kind of informs them in terms of when and how to repress protesters. And with that said, repression, direct repression, mass repression did happen in Morocco. Um, and it tended to happen once red lines were crossed. For example, once the organization entered the popular neighborhoods, which really could lead to the potential of mass mobilization in Morocco, that's where you see the deployment of Baltajia. Some of the scenes we see in saw in Tahrir Square, where where you have direct repression with batons and direct uh, types of repression, you see that more once um, they tend to cross those red lines. But overwhelmingly, I think overall, the repression tended to be a lot more subdued, re relatively speaking, um, and targeted when compared to the region. Now, like a like a lot of uh, actually, I would say like most of the youth movements, both in the region and elsewhere, there's a heavy use of social media uh, in terms of organization, in terms of getting messages out, and uh, and and all of that. But Morocco is also very it, it it controls it the mainstream media 
quite rigid, quite rigidly. Um, tell us just a little bit about the, the the battles over public opinion and uh, media and kind of how that all worked out. Yeah, so I think uh, um, social um, media was um, very important to mobilization for the February 20th movement. Um, they actually took their call to protest um, 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 uh, uh, to social media through this very effective two-minute video. Um, so if you just Google it, it's just called Call to Protest February 20. Um, and, and it's an interesting video where you see um, kind of all members of Moroccan society represented. You see, you know, the very young, the very old, the Amisig, um, the Islamist, leftist, uh, women, men, um, and they're all going over these different um, problems in Morocco and why they decide to protest on February 20th. So from the beginning, they're using social media to portray the movement as representative of all Moroccans, not ideologically specific, um, and calling for protest. Um, social movement, uh, social media was also used um, in terms of, uh, you know, having a uh, um, a voice online through these different uh, uh, blogs and different uh, posts that were used on Facebook and Twitter and things like that. Um, and you see the the regime also using kind of uh, um, social media to smear the movement. So there's different videos showing, you know, um, activists or figureheads um, drinking alcohol, for instance, and things like that, and that being made public. Um, then there's different kind of flipping videos making fun of, you know, the life of a protester and things like that. So there's different videos that are released um, um, uh uh, most likely by, you know, um, the government or by those that support the government trying to smear um, um, uh, figureheads and uh, uh, members of the February 20th movement. Now, maybe one last question is that, you know, you describe February February 20th as, you know, emerging and then demobilizing, but you begin the book and end the book looking at a more recent protest wave at uh, the reef protests. And, you know, what's the relationship between uh, the, the February 20th movement and its legacies and what we saw a few years ago? Yeah, um, so um, with uh, with what, ha what happened in the reef with the mobilization there, the Haraka Reef, um, it's it's a very different dynamic with a very different history in the reef. Of course, I think that's important to mention, right? So it's a, it's a kind of a it's a it's a marginalized part of Morocco, right? It's a it's a, it's a part of Morocco that was shortly an independent state, a European state, and it's a part of Morocco that's oftentimes neglected, right? It's not there's not a lot of investment that happens during uh, the king's predecessor in that part of the country. So it has this uh, different uh, history when compared to the rest of Morocco, um, but um, this this begins to happen after, when I was there when I was doing field work and I you know after uh, after um, uh, the protest uh, kind of erupted in uh, in uh, in, Mor in Morocco during this time, a lot of the uh, the, the activists I was interviewing were attributing the protest to. Um, the February 20th movement. They were saying this new culture of street politics, you know, people no longer being afraid to stand up to police and to authorities was due to the February 20th movement and kind of them paving the way. Um, I think activists within the RIF would question that, right, due to their long history of resistance to the state. But still, a lot of the interviewees saw it in that way. Um, and I think the regime's response to this movement is also a lot, uh, it wasn't the same, right? There's more, a lot more direct repression happening. I couldn't, uh, you know, uh, researchers or, or those in the media couldn't enter the reef at the time, right? It was kind of just closed off to the rest of Morocco. So, so there's a lot more heavy handed approach taken by the regime at the time towards the reef versus the February 20th movement. But still, I think there is a connection between the two movements. And I do think there's still some, some uh, some connection there where you see um, you know both movements um, 
fighting against you know the so-called hogra right the arabic term for for uh, injustice or degradation right um so so it was a regional um, organization a regional um, uprising but actually spread throughout morocco you see kind of pro-reef protests happening everywhere so, so i think there are some ties as well that you could uh, connect to february 20 uh, and the Heracle rift well thanks we've been speaking with uh, sammy badran about his new book killing contention mm-hmm.